Today on Sagittarian Matters, we're talking about comics, comics technique, art practice, living while black, and more with artist, professor, and friend to the show, Awan Mance. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, friends, I'm coming to you just a few days out from the shooting in Colorado at Club Q. I'm coming to you today, Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. The story is still unfolding, but what we know for sure is that five people died and I think 18 people had to go to the hospital with injuries after this shooting, and the shooter was subdued by several people from the bar. That's what we know. Um, It's a really sad and scary time. Queer and trans listeners, this podcast has your back. For whatever that means, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy that you can have my voice in your ear, that we get to hang out on a semi-regular basis through the podcast. And please know that producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself have your back. Now listen, Ponyo's 10 pounds. She cannot see, but I know her intention. Whether or not this works out, I cannot, don't, you know, don't quote me on it at the time, but whether or not this works out, Ponyo's intention would be to rush the attacker, if she ever saw someone trying to harm you, bite the shit out of their ankles. That's Ponyo's plan. And I'm going to tell you something else. That's my plan too. I'm five feet tall. I have arthritis, probably wearing two wrist braces at once. If I see someone trying to harm you, I will rush them. And I will probably also be biting their ankles, doing the best I can, trying to take out their Achilles. I don't know. Uh, But that's the promise from Ponyo and myself. Producer Chris isn't here with me right now. I don't know exactly what hand-to-hand combat to sign him up for, but something. He's going to do something, I'll tell you what. He's got a skill in there. I'll just ask him what it is. But please know we all have your back. We have your back in front of your face and behind your back. We will always be working for your rights to be upheld and for you to feel safe, as safe as you can where we are. Um, I think that I have some YouTube videos of me showing people how to draw themselves into a safe space. During this time, if you're feeling really rough, and you need to process this somehow, or you need to feel safe somewhere because you don't feel safe in the world, please try and find one of those videos, revisit it, they're free, or just take some time with yourself and draw yourself being held by a giant creature, whatever kind of creature you want. It could be a Totoro, it can be a trademarked creature, a Shrek, I don't know, I don't know you. Draw yourself being held by a giant creature. Draw yourself somewhere safe that feels like the safest place in the world. And know that for however long you spend drawing that picture, you get to feel safe. Oh, listeners, I'm going to cry. It's such an intense time. I wanted to share some things with you because I know that some of you are straight allies or are people that that are allies that don't identify as LGBTQIA+. And so I wanted to offer you some suggestions for things you can do. Number one for me, 
I just really appreciate it when something like this happens, like a hate crime against gay people and trans people. I really appreciate seeing straight people stick their necks out. And whether that is you extending a hand to just say like, hey friend, I love you so much. It's a really scary time. That's huge. Or if you're a straight person and you can do like even more than sharing, sharing a post, wonderful. If you can do even more than sharing a post, I think that is terrific. Um, Because your queer friends and your trans friends are scared and are sad. And, you know, this, a bar may not seem like, you know, a haven to you, but it really is sometimes the only safe place for queer people in a small town and for trans people in a small town. And these are definitely places that I have haunted as a young person. Anyway, I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy you're all here. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you like the podcast, tip producer Chris. His name on Venmo is Hellbooks. On PayPal, it's hornetleg at gmail.com. Please enjoy the show. And Ponyo and I look forward to seeing you sometime. Awan Mans is a professor of English at Mills College in Oakland, California, and a professor of comics at California College of the Arts. Awan is a lifetime artist and writer, and in both her scholarly writing and her visual art, Awan explores the complexities of race, gender, and identity. Awan's illustrations and comics have appeared in many anthologies, including, but not limited to, Drawing Power, edited by Diane Newman. Awan has two books out that I urge you to run, run, don't walk, to get right now. A Thousand and One Black Men from Stack Deck Press and Living Wild Black from Chronicle Books. You can find Awan, her books, and more at awanmance.com. You can also listen to a previous episode of Sagittarian Matters, where we talk about when Awan was on Jeopardy. Now, please enjoy my talk with friend to the show, artist Awan Mance. Awan Mance, welcome back to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so wonderful to see you again. Thanks. Thanks. It's a uh... It's been an eventful time, and I'm glad to be able to come back and um, and uh, and chat with you. Well, first thing I want to say is now we're both teaching at CCA. We're both teaching comics. What yes. are you teaching there? I'm teaching a course that's really fun for me. It's short, short form comics. Um, and so, you know, we're teaching, um, we're reading everything from, we're reading and making everything from single panel comics, the type that you'd see in New Yorker, um, to uh, the old style one page comics that are like 17 by 20 inches for the old tabloid newspapers. Um, uh, like if anyone's familiar with the Little Nemo comics, uh, those are beautifully drawn full color from the early 20th century. Um, and then we're also doing your typical comic strip, three or four panels, uh, the type of three or four panel dailies that most people are familiar with. Gosh, I love that. Is that the way that you work? Because I know I've seen longer comics from you. Yeah. But you know, the strangest thing is I, as I was putting this together, I've started doing um, uh, working on my own comic strips because I love the form. I think it makes you have to really... Um, engage in this kind of economy of language and imagery. But I looked at my own comics and I realized that almost every single page is 
can um, almost function as its own standalone mini comic. Mm. And so I think that I do think in three to six panels at a time. I mean, I always try, I, I really am of the idea that in a longer project, each chapter is like a paragraph and each page can be like a sentence, like just uh-huh. kind of saying one thing. And I think the more I can think about each thing, each chapter as a standalone comic, the stronger the book is as a whole. But this idea of having each page kind of standalone makes it even stronger. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just re- reading all of these kind of masters of the comic strip has really kind of broadened and deepened my commitment to continuing to work um, and to step up my game in terms of doing four panel. Um, you know, I love the way someone like um, Bill Watterson or Charles Schultz or Aaron Magruder just strings together um, several three or four panel comics into a week long story um, that sometimes goes beyond that. And so that's my and that's my new obsession. Oh, my God. I love that. And I love Little Nemo books. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. They're gorgeous. <laughs> beautiful work. I remember coming across it as a child in the public library. And uh, that's when I first became exposed to Little Nemo. And I thought, this is hallucinogenic. Well, I didn't think that as a kid. <laughs> this is this is dreamlike. Um, yeah. It's beautiful. But he, we're here today to celebrate. Okay. So when you came on the podcast before, you were working on a series of portraits, 1001 Portraits of Black Men. And now it is out. It is published. It is a beautiful book and people can go get it. For That's people right. who didn't hear your episode before, can you tell us about this project? How it started, how it went. That's a lot of portraits. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'll as, as succinctly as possible. Um, from July, I believe it was July of 2010 to January of 2017, I did 1001 portraits of African American men. Um, who I encountered in my everyday life and my travels. Um, And the project started because um, I started looking at African-American media representations of Black men. And I noticed that, um, I mean, I was looking at mainstream commercial media. um, And most of the Black men who I encountered in these magazines were um, famous, wealthy um, supermodels, uh, and athletes, and I and and very celebratory. I love that, especially Essence Magazine really does a great job of celebrating Black men. Um, but I thought, you know, I wonder if I could create some sort of media in which I look at the full, broad range of African American and the constituencies who don't really show up in magazines, as well as the ones who do. Um, but you know, just drawing Black men as as they are. Um, without trying to project my expectations or my interests um, on to or aspirations onto them. And so I d- dove in and I thought it would take me about three years worth of drawings to really immerse myself. Those three years turned into six and a half years. Um, but that was my project. Wow. And so now it's out. It, did it come out in the summertime? It came out in June or July? That's right, July. Yeah, July 2022. Um, and now it is a um, thank you to Stack Deck Press for producing this hardcover, um, uh, large format uh, book that includes 20, about 250 featured images that I've divided into categories of some of my most common categories. A lot of Black youth, elders, 
queer and trans black men, um, people around Oakland, um, and then from across the country, uh, African-American men um, I encountered just hanging out on the sidewalk, heading towards work, what have you, and then black nerds and geeks, one of my favorite categories. Um, and then the best part to me, or at least I think one of the, my favorite part of the book is that at the end, we have um, all 750 of the other drawings um, in what uh, the publisher calls yearbook pages. And wow. so, you know, viewers can go from the very first drawing and see how the series evolved over time. How did you evolve as an artist over time? That's a great question. Um, I will say, um, I'll begin my answer by saying I did a show of about probably two or 300 of the drawings um, near about two years from the end of the series. And it was a shocking moment for me to put the drawings up and see how much I had changed as an artist. I was mm -hmm. taken aback because I thought when I was putting up the first ones, I thought these drawings are amazing. And then I realized that they had progressed. I had changed as an artist with this practice. Um, and um, well, you know, certainly I got, I became less afraid of color. You know, I've always loved color. Um, and when I did a lot of acrylic painting, my drawings were very brightly colored and kind of fanciful colors. But I started coloring digitally for this series. I drew in ink and then I colored digitally. And, um, and I was a little more, um, I wasn't afraid of the color, but I wasn't, I didn't dive in in the same way, but that evolved over time. And so just, I became invested in much fuller, brighter colors. Um, and I don't know that you can see this from the drawings, but I also developed a greater feeling of accountability to my subjects over time. And so um, I drew a lot of early drawings from memory or sketching in a cafe. I continued to sketch, but I also started using more um, photos for my drawings. I also started responding more to people who said, well, I wanna be in this series. And so I drew more people um, who knew that they would be seeing their drawings later on. And so um, I feel like um, my portrait skills got stronger over the 1001 drawings. My color skills, particularly using digital tools got stronger. Um, and you know, if you look at the very last drawing of, that's of my father and compare it to the first, I, they both have their strengths but the styles have, have really, um, it really evolved over time. Did you know that you wanted your father to be the last one you did? I did not. I didn't know that probably until I got to about 900. And then I thought, well, I need to end this. Um, you know, oddly enough, I never included my brother, who's one of my favorite people on the planet. But, um, but I, I, as I, um, as my dad was also aging, I thought, you know, I want to make sure to get a good portrait of him done. And, um, you know, he was such a support of my art when I was a kid, you know, just taking me to museums and galleries and art stores. Um, and so I thought it would be appropriate to finish with him. That's really beautiful. As a portrait artist, just to get in the weeds of it, I find... So I've drawn portraits of humans for different things. And then of course I do a lot of pet portraits and animal <laughs> portraits. So like with dogs, the nose is really important. The nose length, how far away it is from your eyes, the nostrils. But with humans, I really focus on the eyes first and foremost. And that's how I, that's how I begin. Oh, interesting. I'm curious how you begin. Cause I do the eyes first. And then depending if someone has an exceptional nose, exceptional nostril, you know, cause some people, 
some portraits it's easier because you have a crutch, which could be like, oh, they have glasses. Okay, it automatically looks like them because it's wearing glasses. But if it's someone's <laughs> just bare face and they don't have an exceptional hairstyle or glasses or some other kind of thing, freckles. <laughs> you know, I'm wondering where do you start? What part feels the most important to you to capture the likeness of somebody? Or like, what do you look for? You know, I start, I think it's interesting that you start with the eyes because I start in the center as well, but I start with the nose. Mm -hmm. um, and so I usually do nose um, and often then I end up doing lips um, because I'm looking at the width of the lips relative to the nose um, and um, then eyes. So I have that center part first. Um, and I think I do the nose. I mean, I've often thought, oh, I, I start with the nose because I feel like I mostly draw black people. And I feel like that's a feature that feels to me um, that um, it's one of the uh, features for which black people have been maligned, you know, having a nose that doesn't, doesn't look particularly European. But there are so many different ways of drawing a nose that signifies as black. And each person I draw um, just brings a very different um, kind of black look. You know, Bell Hooks talks about black looks. There are a lot of black looks. And I start all of my um, interpretations of someone's particular look uh, with the nose. And then I go for the lips. Mm. And now as a portraitist living in the world, do you find yourself fixating on people's noses or lips as, cause sometimes when I'm having a conversation with somebody, someone's like, Oh, who are you talking? I'm like, Oh, that person with the incredible nostrils. And they're like, what? And it'll be something that just as an artist, I'm noticing that I think other people, it's not the first thing that they go for. Yeah. You know, I, I will say I, especially having done this series, I look at people and I think, this person would be a great drawing. Um, and I sometimes for me, it's also, I all, no matter what, I usually start with the nose, but the hair also becomes a really interesting uh, part to me. So I look at people's noses and often at their hair and I think, oh yeah, this would be a great drawing. <laughs> you know, maybe I need to do a thousand and one more black men. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not gonna happen. Um, but I do, it, ch it changes how I look at, how I look at people. Um, a lot. Do you end up using a ruler to see what the kind of nostril to lip ratio and mouth ratio is, or do you just eyeball it? I just eyeball it. Yeah. Um, I will say um, with some, I've had to draw more and more doing some commission work, people who are not black and, um, and it's, I really love the challenge, especially in the Bay Area of doing, uh, you know, I've drawn portraits of entire workplaces, you know, everyone on our team, 35 people, and they're so incredibly diverse. And that's, it's great practice for me. And it, I just love kind of immersing myself in all of the different ways that people kind of show up. Um, and sometimes I'm just asked to draw, you know, can you please draw something that looks like a farmer's market in Oakland and all the people who would show up? And so I love the ways that how I'm looking at people translates onto the page so that, you know, creating a drawing so that everyone who looks at it can see themselves somewhere in the drawing. It's an mm. interesting challenge. Um, and I, I love those kinds of projects. Oh, that's so nice. Congratulations on finishing a thousand and one portraits. I think <laughs> you're officially like the most, the most senior portraitist, the most expert portraitist <laughs> that probably any of us have ever met or experienced. That's a lot of portraits. 
It is, I don't think I realized how many it was when I started the project. Um, but, and it, um, and it is, um, and it has changed my world outside of the project, but um, it didn't feel like a thousand and one. It just felt like um, an art practice that had become part of my week. And so it's, um, you know, I've written a dissertation. I'm a professor in my other life. Um, and, you know, in terms of projects that are long and deep, this was a pleasure. It really was. Do you miss it? I do in some ways. Um, I love working in a series. And so since then, I've done a couple of other series you know, to kind of allow me to pursue a line of creative inquiry um, beyond just a single piece of art. Well, you have another book coming out uh, yes. in November from your series, Living Wild Black. Yes. Can you tell us about this and how people can find it and everything? Oh, absolutely. Um, and this was a wonderful piece of uh, serendipity um, in which an editor went through my Instagram and saw that I'd done a series of drawings in the summer of 2020 um, during the George Floyd protests um, because of my own health and age and that of people I love, I um, did not feel comfortable going out into the streets. Um, so I did portraits of Black people doing things that are not really crimes, but for which Black people have been arrested, harassed, or killed. Um, and uh, happy to say that um, not that long, you know, two years later, this is a book that's going to be coming out on November 22nd from Chronicle Books. And um, I added, um, you know, it was just a series of portraits. Um, and now it also uh, functions as a little bit of an encyclopedia of the everyday acts that are criminalized when Black people perform them. And so each portrait has a definition, a dictionary, but I'm the dictionary. So it has my definition of sleeping while Black or aging while Black. Um, and then the end of the uh, book has, I think, one of the most important parts, and that is a timeline from 2009 to 2021 of these incidents, these living while Black incidents. And so I have examples of all the different kinds of incidents that I illustrate. Um, you can then find them in the timeline. Um, and um, it starts in 2009 because, of course, that year began with the killing of um, Oscar Grant at Fruitvale Station. And so um, that, uh, so it's informative and I hope it's pretty to look at as well. Yeah. That's such a huge, both of these projects are such huge, important projects. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I just felt like, um, you know, both of them, I have kind of, what I think is really interesting and what's important for me, both in my scholarship as an English professor and in my art, is I really think it's important to get more of the representations of Blackness into the world based on how we experience Blackness from the inside, um, you know, it's, um, I don't even necessarily believe in the idea of positive role models in the media. What I do believe is we need more Black voices. We all experience our identities and our communities a little bit differently. And so I want to get my art out there. It's a way of seeing through my eyes for a little while. If you page through a thousand and one Black men, you get to see the Black world um, that I experience through how I see the men around me. And if you look at Living Wild Black, um, I hope it will expose the divide between what I see when I look at a Black person selling lemonade and what other people see 
when they see a black person selling lemonade. I see someone selling lemonade. Other people see a crime in progress. And so I'm hoping that the beauty and the color in those drawings, and it's very colorful, um, kind of open up and expose that there's this, this gulf between how we experience ourselves and how we're seen. Today's episode is brought to you by KDB, Kim Nishimoto, Jenna Luna, Kale McHurst Comics and Illustration, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. Hell Books. That's H-E, double hockey sticks, books on Venmo. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Poyusha Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. What's next? Both of these were series. Both of these took up a lot of your time. I'm interested to know what your practice looks like now. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to know, are you working on other projects that are long form like that? Yeah. Um, my practice now is um, I'm reformulating it after these projects. Um, and I have a couple of upcoming other projects that um, one, I just finished all of the art for. Um, it's a children's book. I won't give out the title at this point, but it will be appearing in the fall of 2023. That's the scheduled time. Um, and then a collection of my comics, which will be out sometime in 2023, depending on how quickly I can finish the additional 30 some odd pages <laughs> that I'm completing for the book. Um, and so, um, um, but my I'm, re- I'm putting my practice back together, um, having finished most of those two additional projects. And so what I'm really interested in is trying to make um, drawing, um, you know, do a couple of things, continue to draw in a series, but I also am really fascinated by the ways that people work who do comic strips um, that they are producing every single day. And and so I'm trying to um, approach my new art practice with non-judgment and just come up with um, gags every day, or um, I'm also doing an A to Z series of Black women animated. Um, And they're living in an imaginary apartment building, and I'm going to be putting those out on social media. Um, And so, um, you know, just one or the other of these two projects, just doing a little bit of that every day, um, and in a way that feels fun for me and not burdensome. That's what I I really want to make sure that even as I'm meeting deadlines and doing kind of larger projects, that it still remains something that is the way that I communicate about myself and the way that I kind of um, get a chance to kind of reflect on my own way of being in the world. And so I need to continue to make to even as I'm doing other projects that it's it's there's a core of it that's still for me. How do you balance that with your teaching? Like, do you have are there protected hours every day? that are your drawing hours? Or do you have days where you're like, okay, I'm just 100% doing my day job right now. And then I'm doing my art day job a different day. 
How do you protect your energy for that? Uh, that's a great question. It is it is a work in progress. Um, but I have had to set some boundaries. You know, I don't do um, my day job at night anymore. Um, that's for me to do something related to my own personal um, drawings or my art projects and deadlines. Um, I use about four to six hours a day on weekends to really have focused art time. And every day, um, I usually I try to do it in the first half of the day to really um, to do some drawing for my own um, projects, my Black women animations or deadline projects for books. Um, I try to do that at least during the first half of the day um, and try to uh, um, really limit uh, the amount of creep of other parts of my um, work life into the time for the art life, which has become work life as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, I have a friend who's a, an arts consultant. So she works with artists in a way that's kind of both career talk and a little bit therapy talk. Yeah. And she is like, art, a lot of artists get down on themselves for being lazy, for not doing enough of their art. And she's like, but you are people who have normal jobs and then have this other job that you're doing all the time. And so you're actually working a lot more than most people. Yes. And I'm glad you said that because I, I too can think, you know, I, my sense of how productive I am sometimes uh, when I am not really giving attention to what I should um, is not necessarily based on how much I do, but it's based on how much I've accomplished relative to the number of things I have to do and having a lot of things um, doesn't mean that I'm not doing everything. It means that um, I am, I'm, I'm actually accomplishing a lot every day. Maybe I'm just a quarter through this project, but it's a big project. And so I have to shift a little bit the way that I, I think about things. Um, it doesn't help either that I am an English professor. And so, you know, in terms of writing books and writing papers and all of the things that we do, um, we put a lot of pressure around ourselves about around deadlines that you can master um, pretty, you know, I've been a professor now for 20, 28 years. And so, you know, I understand how long it takes me to write something, what kinds of research I need to do, but art is a completely different timeline, um, especially comics when you're scripting and you're drawing. It requires a different kind of use of time. And so I, I, I'm trying to be easier on myself. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It requires also some expansiveness, like just being able to sit there and just let and think about ideas. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've told you before, but I use a thermometer system when I'm working on a long project or a project that's a drag, but mostly like a long project, like a really long graphic novel. And it's just like a thermometer, like in elementary school, the can drive or whatever thing where I just I'm allowed to outline the segments of the thermometer when I've penciled a page and then I get to fill them in only when I've inked a page because really working on a long project is, it feels like nothing. It feels like a drop in a bucket where, you know, at the end of the day, you're like, did I do anything? Oh no. <laughs> but having the thermometer, then I get the little thrill of being like, it's like I'm coloring in this line here and it looks, you know, and then I get to look at how many pages I've actually done on, like I get to see re like that represented right there in front of me oh that's cool consider I might it have to, uh, might have to steal that 
consider the thermometer system. I, I made it for myself because I just felt it, it, it's a little bit, I don't, I don't know how to say it feels like drowning or there's just something at a certain point. Like when you have that many pages left to do, yeah. where you're like, how will this ever happen? This can never happen. <laughs> I just finished page 30. This is a 200 page book. I'm never gonna, how is that? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and I have not done a book, um, uh, done a graphic novel that long, but you know, there's this, and I think, okay, I've drawn this panel. <laughs> now I have to go back and ink this panel. Now I have to go back and manage the, uh, you know, the lettering for this panel. Um, I like that, you know, the incremental um, successes that you have as you're moving through the, that's great. Okay. The last time I did a book proposal, I actually made a separate column I made a column for pencils, a column for inks, a column maybe for scanning and Photoshop, because that was a whole other, you know, can of worms that I wasn't giving myself credit for taking up time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so then anyway, that's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that that could help you in, in any way, shape or form. Oh, yes. I, yes, I'll be drawing my uh, thermometer later. today. <laughs> oh my God, please, please share it with us if you do. Um, do you have any uh, recommended reading for listeners or do you have any advice for young cartoonists? Good question. Um, I would say uh, I, I have loads of recommended reading. Um, I love reading graphic novels. Um, so I guess I'll say that, um, you know, I, um, I love, uh, I've read some great stuff by Cat Lay. I think the last time maybe that we spoke, I might've mentioned Thirsty Mermaids, mm. which is such a great graphic novel. Um, and I also just read Snapdragon, both are by Cat Lay. I think Snapdragon is for a young a YA audience. Um, Thirsty Mermaids, I think can work for YA, although the premise is that um, is more adult in terms of uh, involving alcohol. So perhaps it's an adult book. I don't know. Um, um, and then, um, you know, the I, I like YA uh, comics stuff. Um, and so I read the whole series of the Witch Boy comics and mm. um, loved the idea of um, this kind of gendered power being not quite as gendered as people thought it was. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, and I, I return over and over again. This is the last thing I'll recommend. But I return over and over again to the book of a comic creator I actually know, and that is um, T. Bowie's The Best We Could Do, which is such a great graphic novel. And I'm interested in also, now I pay more attention to um, the strategies that she uses in creating um, her art, and particularly how her characters um, exist in space. Um, because I think that's one of the most challenging things for me as a comic creator is, you know, I want people to be walking down the street how long is it going to take me to draw this entire street? Um, and so what are some of the strategies that I can use that make people, you know, help people, you know, place them there on the street with this character, but that don't require me to draw every single house and every single walkway. Um, and so I'm, you know, she's kind of, she and uh, a couple of other folks are really masterful with that. I think, yeah, learning that economy in comics is huge. And it's hard. I, I honestly go back and forth with it. 
where I have a compulsion to just fill up the space with as many details as I can because they exist uh, in real life. Right. And then having the restraint to have something that just nods at like, here's what it, here's what it is. And then you can just trust that they, the reader understands what you're putting down. Yeah. I mean, trust, I think that's a great, you know, it's kind of trusting the reader. And in some ways I feel sometimes that I have to trust myself that I'm communicating this um, in a way that is comprehensible to others. Um, and then of course I'll open by someone who, you know, beautifully details every single thing in every single panel. And I think, ah, what am I doing? Um, so that's why I read a lot of graphic novels so that I can see the full range of, you know, that anything goes. People do a lot of stuff. It's all good. It's all good. Well, Awan, thank you for coming back to the podcast. I'm so excited to have both of your books on my shelf and on my coffee table. A Thousand and One Black Men is out now with Stack Deck Press. People can order it um, or they can go find it in a store. And Living While Black is coming out in November with Chronicle Books. Can people pre-order that now? Yes, pre-orders are quite desirable. Um, so you can go anywhere books are sold. You can find Living Wild Black, um, Portraits of Everyday Resistance. Yay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.